I am a wild woman of hills and rivers, human fruit of nature. I go alone through the forest, gathering food. On the earth, I find food for my body. In the air, I find food for my spirit. I am scared by the world's cruelty. That is why I am elusive and confuse others with my walk. I don't have a companion. I steal men from the hills to procreate. I am free. I am part of the landscape. I am rock, water fountain, plants and animals. I am beautiful and mysterious, unreachable, sovereign, and untamable. La Siguapa, poem by La Casica. This is Monstras. And welcome to another episode of Monstras. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Brenda Salguero. And with me today is... Orquidea Morales. We're doing last <laughs> names now, I guess. Again. You didn't know what to do with Brenda anymore. I didn't know what to do. Um, I wanted to add an extra flair, extra flavor this time, you know. I wasn't sure what to do, so I always forget to introduce ourselves, too, so that's also random. Sometimes, some episodes, we introduce ourselves, some yeah. episodes, we don't. I mean, people by now should know who we are. If they don't, what's wrong with them, really? Yes. If you don't know, we're not going to tell you. Yeah, I'm no. sorry. <laughs> You're not <laughs> cool. Not You're not cool enough to know who we are if you don't know already. <laughs> True. I always also have debated, should I start the episode with like saying who we, what we do? Like we cover, you know, female monsters from Latin America for any new listeners. And then I'm like, nah, just go back. Just go back to the first episode. Yeah. Well, and I feel like if we keep saying it, then we can't change it. Sometimes we feel like covering that. Sometimes we feel like covering dogs. So, you know, (laughs) we want to be flexible. That's true. That is true. So, speaking of flexible, uh, that's not even a good tangent. No. But <laughs> well, go ahead. Today we're talking about yoga. <laughs> today, today, yeah. Today we're very, we're talking about a very flexible monster. Um, her name is La Guapa. So, before we get started, have you actually heard about her before this episode? I had not. And it, again, like last week, I'm just, I'm really ignorant to non-Mexican monsters, which is really <laughs> sad. So I was excited to learn more about her. How about you? Did you know about her? Nah, same. I didn't know that much about her, um, which is sad to say that, uh, you know, includes a lot of the history of the, so just spoiler alert, I guess. Uh, La Guapa is from the Dominican Republic. And so I learned a lot. I knew I knew a lot, a bit of history from about the Dominican Republic, but I didn't know as much as I learned and as much as I figured out in this episode, like in researching this episode. So um, 
it's going to be interesting. Yeah. It's a very interesting monster and it's very intense history. So just FYI, guys. Um, and dear listener, by the end of this episode, you will know a lot about the DR as well. So let's dive into who exactly is La Ciguapa. Okay. So let me do a, we'll do a little bit of background first. Um, so for over a century, there have been a lot of tales of a creature said to hide in the shadows of the mountainous regions of the Dominican Republic. Uh, lone farmers have said that they have encountered her while picking cacao or looking for new routes in the forest. So she likes dark, creepy places and chocolate, I guess. Mm. But who, who doesn't? Who could blame her? <laughs> Uh, it's said that she feeds on the flesh of men or souls in some cases. Again, very relatable. <laughs> and her story is told to children to make sure they do not wander out alone. Which is similar to some of the other monsters that we've talked about. Um, yeah. They're, they're very cautionary tales yeah. oriented. I mean, you can't take care of all your kids, so sometimes you just have to scare them so they're too terrified to leave the house. You can't watch them 24-7. Yeah, especially if you have a lot of kids and a lot of land and, you know, the surrounding area is scary. Yeah, scare the crap out. Yeah, scare the crap out of them to make sure they don't go in. Yeah, and she's really cool looking from the sounds of it. She has long, dark hair and backwards feet. So we are talking about flexibility. She has backwards feet. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And her hair is so long that some accounts say it reaches her ankles. That sounds dangerous, but... Yeah, especially if you're running in the forest. Yeah. Your hair is just getting caught left and right on, on different trees. Yeah. You're, you're probably tripping over your hair, that sort of thing. Like, I, I wouldn't want to do that. But I also heard that it helps, because she's nude, it kind of helps cover her, you oh. know, in like a, a very fancy hairdress i guess i don't know so like a veil or something yeah okay. it, it, it helps cover her her be- breasts in a very romantic way i okay. guess are we talking about boobs this episode again is that what we're doing <laughs> again yes it's another boob filled episode <laughs> there's no titty slapping in this one though oh I swear. I'm, I'm disappointed <laughs> <laughs> so those who survive an encounter encounter with her are said to first notice a calm in the area so insects stop buzzing and birds stop singing. That's what happens when, when all- I go outside. <laughs> <laughs> the animals are like, why is she outside? <laughs> They're all just mad. Yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> so when all is eerily still, it's then that she reveals herself. Besides the long black hair, she's also reported to have these big dark eyes And she doesn't stand taller than like a meter or so. Legends also state that she is incredibly graceful. So walking with all her limbs, so this is a quote, walking with all her limbs in complete harmony, despite those backwards feet and all that hair. (laughs) So, I mean, that sounds really cool because I can't imagine being any sort of graceful walking around in the forest naked barefoot. The fact that she can right. do it with the hair, backwards feet. Um, right. I would be just a rabid looking woman with like twigs in her hair, <laughs> dirty ass feet, yeah. you know, l- like leaves. With, you know, I would probably cover my boobs or something with like 
mud covered leaves or something, you know, to You'd make have them leaf stick. pasties. <laughs> Nature's leaf pasties. Okay. Nature's pasties. <laughs> That's what I probably would do. How much? How but much? she she's graceful. How much is a meter? I'm I'm really ignorant here. I'm from America. Meter, I think Texas. a meter is, let's see, a meter to feet. A meter is three, three and, and like 0.2 feet. Oh, so she's short. Yeah, she's really, really tiny. She's a tiny little thing. So I wonder if her, like, her hair, I mean, it's long on her, but like on us, it'd probably be like. T- <laughs> Are you thinking of scalping the siwapa and making yourself a weave? <laughs> Listen, if I could make money off Siguapa hair and Siguapa hair, I would 100% do some sort of like dark underground. Oh my gosh. Wow. So much for feminists over here. Capitalism. I'm here shaving these these monsters' hair for money. (laughs) Terrible. Oh my gosh. Okay. So the Siwapa, like many other women, likes to go out at night um, and sleep on tree branches. We've all done that before. Absolutely. Uh, you can also catch her braiding the tail of horses. I, I found that hilarious. Like she likes, <laughs> it just sounds like she likes braiding and she's like, ooh, hair. <laughs> yeah. Braiding horses' she just tails braiding. and stuff. <laughs> braiding any hair she finds, she'll braid it. Yeah. And this was my favorite part. If you're not careful, she can break into your house and steal your food, which again, sounds amazing. Like she sounds like, <laughs> I, I want to meet her and break into people's houses and be like, what the fuck do they have in here? Why, do, why don't they have chocolate? <laughs> I know, right? I demand chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Give me chocolate. Um, but of course, her preference is to find men wandering alone at night. Again, very relatable. Absolutely relatable. I love it. And so- <laughs> In one version that I read online, it is said that she seduces men she finds wandering alone at night. Which, by the way, what are you doing, man, wandering alone at night? Like, what is your what is your what way are you to victim blame? <laughs> <laughs> Only if you're a man. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you wearing, man? What are you like, wearing? Are you Why are those jeans so tight? <laughs> Why are you wearing so much cologne? Why are you wearing those mud leaf pasties? <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> Anyways, she apparently seduces men she finds wandering alone at night and entices them to go into a, her cave with her. Okay, see, that's the thing too. Why are you following her into a cave? Well, I mean, is the cave a euphemism for something else? Wink, wink. I can't wink, so I just I have to say wink, wink. <laughs> it's not because it's a podcast. It's because I can't wink. <laughs> no, your eyelids are actually glued shut, glued open. Yeah, People are. don't know this about Ophelia, but yes, her eyes are permanently open. They are permanently open. I, I must see all. <laughs> so then, well, she lures them into her cave, wink, wink, nudge, 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 to, to make love to them. So it's not even a metaphor. She just, just has sex with them. Yeah. And then she kills them and eats them bit by bit. 
A woman after my own heart. That's truly. Fun. That's super resourceful. Because honestly, what else are you going to eat if you're out in the forest by yourself? Besides cacao. And berries. Like that's that's no sustenance. You need some protein. Yeah, exactly. Tree bark, that sort of thing. Not yeah. good enough. Man, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> eat a man. <laughs> and uh, one, some of the versions say that she's morena or brown. Um which is a super important aspect that we'll talk about when we kind of go more into the analysis. So, just, you know, listeners, don't forget she's morena. I don't know how to translate morena very well because brown seems weird, but brown it's does brown. seem weird. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess like a shade, a few shades darker than white, but not. Is it dark as black? I don't know. But like, that's the thing. A lot of people, especially like in the Caribbean, use morena also to mean black. That's true, actually. Yes. And it's used either. I mean, you could use it mostly as a term of endearment, right? Mm-hmm. So I did a whole paper on colorism back in college. And it, in, in your youth? In, it, in what? In your youth? In my youth. My youth. Yeah, I did a whole paper on colorism. And it's interesting how color, because everyone was so intermixed, because the Spanish would, you know, have sex with anything that moved, mm-hmm. um, th- you have to kind of like, uh, skin color played a huge role. It wasn't so much as race sometimes, unless you were full-blooded something, yeah. right? But if you were mixed, it really, it, it really varied. Like your yeah. skin tone varied. I mean, I read a, a whole thing on a priest basically giving two twins a different race because one was darker than the other. And I, I feel like that's one of the things too when you're like brown. Like if you don't go outside, you're, you, I mean, you don't tan, so you're, you're white. So in the summer, you're brown. And in the winter, you're white. <laughs> I mean, my mother, oh my God. I saw a picture of her when she came from El Salvador when she first came to to America, actually, from El Salvador. And she's dark. She's darker than I am. She's very dark. And then you look at her now and you're like, girl, what happened? Like, where did all the mel- melanin go? Like, it's gone. <laughs> it's a form of uh, survival to, to not experience yeah, she blends, As soon as she passed, she, you know, crossed the border, she started, yeah. like a chameleon, she started to just lose color. <laughs> she's like, must hide melanin now. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that I saw about La Guapa is that she also had dark blue skin. So that was random. Okay. So she could be brown, black, or dark blue. Yeah. Which is ra- like a random color to throw in there, quite yeah. frankly. I wonder if that has to do with um, the moonlight and she goes out at night. Like if she's dark skin, maybe like reflections and stuff. Yeah. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised if yeah. that's what it was. And there's a lot of similarities between the Siwanava, La Llorona, um, and La Siwapa. Like, all three are used to, like, tell children to stay away from them and to not go outside. So, I don't know. I didn't read, or there weren't a lot of instances of La Siwapa near water, which was one of the differences. Yes. So, uh, definitely a lot of parallels, although definitely, finally, a monster <laughs> A monstra who doesn't fucking sit near water and just bathes yeah. all the all the time or all day, you know? 
So La Siguapa really more reminded me of like a wood nymph from like Greek mythology. Yeah. Yeah, she does feel, I think the combination of the height and the long hair feels very like fairy-like. Yeah. Like um, gnome-like or something too. Like yeah. very miniature. Yeah. I just thought of something. How are these men having even sex with like a 3.2... That woman. Okay, like, that's what, what is I was wrong thinking with that? too? Because when we were describing her, because again, I, I have no sense of measurements. Like one meter could be ten feet. I don't know. I also don't <laughs> know what ten feet looks like. Like I have no sense of height space. and space, which is <laughs> why time. I'm a horrible driver. <laughs> oh my god! But I know three feet is shorter than me. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's like it, what, she must look like ju- a child. Yeah. So that also has kind of like another layer of weirdness. So so me shaming, quote, air quotes, uh, the men wandering <laughs> at night. I don't know. I feel like they should be shamed for trying to hit on a 3.2 foot woman. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't. I, the going out at night by yourself is fine. The flirting with a a nondescript age-wise woman because she could like we don't know like she could look like a child yeah like we don't know what like her face looks like really well she has dark like big eyes so i think she is portrayed childlike yeah she sounds childlike she sounds like a a giant you know one of those barbies the life-size barbies that (laughs) the terrifying ones yes (laughs) 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 but that's that's the I mean, you remember those yeah. those life-size Barbie from, like, the 90s or whatever? Yeah. And you could dress her up, like, to look like you or whatever? That's what I'm picturing in my head. So, anyways, that was just a side note uh, that I just, like, realized in this moment. Yeah. Like, whoa, that's weird. That is, that is strange. I mean, men shouldn't be trying to have sex with random, sex with random women that they meet out that are walking around naked. And have horse faces or whatever the case. Especially in caves. I don't know. And she seduces them. So it's it's almost like they put the onus on her. Yeah. For being the sed- seductress as opposed to on him. It makes me almost think like um, sirens. Again, mm-hmm. it's always like the onus is on the woman. Yeah. Of being like the seductress and the person kind of forcing, yeah. air quotes, the man to do these things. But at the same time, it's like who's forcing who like what is what is what is it you know what is the implication here and since we didn't grow up with the tale we aren't 100 percent sure right well and i I feel like you're right consent is never super clear in in these folk tales like with la llorona it's never clear with la siwanaba it wasn't clear so no that's interesting Yeah. yeah Interesting point, right? Yeah. Good job, Brenda. Good job, Brenda. Good job. <laughs> this is why you have a podcast. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about the history. Um, one of the earliest written accounts that we found, or the earliest written accounts of La Siwapa, was in 1866. It was written uh, by the essayist, poet, and author Francisco Javier Angulo Guridi. Um, so we're gonna. I'm gonna read the the full story. This is how it's written. Well, it's written in Spanish and translated to English, but this is the full story of La Siwapa that he wrote in 1866. 
So it is said that since before the discovery of this island, there exists a race whose residence has always been the heart of these mountains. But it is preserved in all its purity, sleeping in the crowns of cedars and feeding on river fish, birds, and fruit. The Siwapa, which is the name by which it is known, is a creature that only rises a rod in height, though it should not be believed that in its proportions there is the deformity of the so-called dwarves in Europe and America. Dang. Far from it, there is an exact harmony in all her muscles and limbs, a wonderful beauty in her face, and an agility in her movements, so full of spontaneity and grace that she leaves the one who sees her absorbed. She has the bronze skin of the true Indian, the black and slanted eyes, the soft, luscious, and abundant hair that rolls down the backs of females to the very calf. The Siwapa has no other language than the howl and runs like a hare through the mountains or leaps like a bird through the branches of the trees as soon as it is it discovers another being other than its race because she is extremely shy and harmless at the same time. In general, she is attributed a sensitivity without example, and it is added that having captured it sometimes through open traps in the forest, she has been seen to die within a few hours from the pain, drowned in her own crying, but without exhaling a single complaint, let alone revealing indignation. So again, that's the first published version of the story, and it kind of became... Uh, the myth that was told and uh, and retold over and over again. So it's kind of like the starting point of the story of the Siwapa and the Dominican uh, Republic. Interesting. And I like the part where it says the so-called dwarves in Europe and America. Like it's not, he's basically like, it's not, she's not as short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, there's, there's a lot there obviously. And, I can't help but but see like this romanticizing of the indigenous peoples of the Dominican Republic, which we're going to talk about when we talk about the history of the Dominican Republic. But that's exactly what it sounds like, right? Like, you know, this is a creature that's been there before the discovery of the island, which is like, okay, you didn't discover it, but whatever. We know what he means. Yes. Yeah. Um, and this figure is pure and doesn't know how to speak. And, you know, he describes her as bronze. Yeah, and and shy and harmless at the same time. I mean, these are just all parallels to how a lot of indigenous communities are seen sometimes Mm -hmm. very impersonal. Yeah. You know? And that they have this connection with nature. Like, you know, they don't speak to us humans, but they will speak to nature. Um, And it also, we're talking about the Siwapa, like the female monster. But if it's a race, that means there must be males, too which is what he's referring to. Oh, that's to. true. And they just all look the same. Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I couldn't find any description of, of the male Siwapa or Siwapo, Siwape. Siwape, yeah. I, there was, I found nothing. So no. it's it's almost as if she, and, and she's different from other monsters too because she lives, it sounds like she is more, she is more dwarf-like in terms of like, it is a race. It's a group mm-hmm. of of these things, as opposed to something like La Siguanaba or La Llorona. They're standalone monsters. They mm-hmm. are monsters who used to be human. These things were not human at all. Yeah, they just subtly look like humans. So it's it's a really interesting uh, piece. So 
I wanted to jump right into like the analysis. And before I do that, I really wanted to kind of give a quick overview. So basically, in order to understand La Ciguapa's origin and history, we have to kind of understand the history of the Dominican Republic. Now, this isn't, so don't come for me. This is not going to be a complete history of the DR. Uh, So bear with me. This is going to be a very quick rundown because I don't want to hold you guys hostage for like 60 hours. So you don't geographically, you don't, you guys don't want to hear me talk for 60 hours. So geographically, the DR is situated right next to Haiti. We went over some of Haiti's history in our zombie episode, so if you're curious, definitely check that out. And although the two countries have much in common, the Dominican Republic is still highly forested with pines and tropical hardwoods. It's also fairly mountainous. Before the Spanish came, practically most, if not all, of the Caribbean was, and still is, inhabited by the Taino people. The Taino people were organized into five chiefdoms with a leader known as a cacique running each. And although the Spanish histories declared the Taino people extinct, there was a study conducted of mitochondrial DNA that showed and revealed that Dominicans have about 30% on average Taino history or ancestry, sorry. And a lot of this, of course, was due not to just intermarriage, but also sexual violence which produced mixed children. Let's, let's remember that. So, having decimated large swaths of Taino population through disease and warfare, the Spanish brought over slaves from Africa to fill you know, this labor shortage. Due to this, most Dominicans are a mixture of African, Taino, and European and Spanish ancestry. And then finally, a quick and interesting fact about uh, the DR is that Santo Domingo, the capital of the Dominican Republic, is the oldest European city in Latin America and was colonized roughly around 1493. Yeah. I mean, we should say like the, the, the island where the Dominican Republic and Haiti is was originally called Hispaniola, right? So yes. like it, it was one combined thing when it was originally colonized in 1493 um and you'll talk a little bit about like the split and and that sort of or the relationship to haiti um yes but yeah like it was it's like the one island with two countries on it uh, which is yeah exactly fascinating and kind of part of the problem yeah and and there's i I mentioned the forest part because haiti doesn't have that much forest because it was deforested but the, the DR does, and that actually relates to La Ciguapa because mm-hmm. La Ciguapa, like, where is she going to live if there's no forests? Yeah. <laughs> where is this legend living, you know? So, uh, the fight for independence. So, Haiti was the first colony to fight and win its independence. At the time, it was ruled by France as it was ceded to them by Spain when they lost some freaking war in Europe. Who knows? Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? In 1809... After an an intense power struggle, the DR was actually reunited with Spain. So remember, 1809. But in 1821, the Dominicans were like, nah, screw this. (laughs) We've had enough of Spain's shit. And they overthrew the Spanish governor and claimed independence for themselves. So 
from 1822 to 1842, Haitians took over the DR. Although the Haitian president, Jean-Pierre Boyer, freed the slaves, destroyed the ruling class, and drove out Western and Hispanic traditions, historians do state that this was not a great time for the DR. So he did some good things, but in retrospect, not a good time for the DR. Yeah. Well, and part of the reason was a lot of countries refused to recognize Haiti, uh, which caused a lot of economic issues um, because they didn't want to recognize a a black country, right? A country that was, had freed slaves, all this sort of stuff. So, yeah. And their history is still erased. People don't know that Haiti was one of the most successful revolutions Mm -hmm. ever. You know, ever. Like, it's crazy. Like, slaves revolted and overthrew their slave masters. Like, it's just, it's just bananas. Anyways, so it wasn't that great. And also, I read that he wasn't a great person. Like, <laughs> that was another thing. I mean, what leader is, though? Yeah, really exactly. <laughs> so all this change led to an escalation of ethnic tensions at the time. In the 1830s, Juan Pablo Duarte formed a secret society to drive out Haitians. And after an earthquake and a civil war in Haiti, the DR finally managed to claim their own independence in 1844. From here on, it is a string of military strongmen who ruled over the DR. It was marked with periods of instability, dictatorship, secret police, etc. All the bad stuff. Of course, there was a period where, of course, right? There was a period where the U.S. had troops in Haiti and in the DR, which created a military, basically it created the military infrastructure that set up and laid the groundwork for future dictators to take power. Thanks, America. That's something to be proud of right there. I know, right? We always install <laughs> those great dictators. Um, we will also touch on this a little later. So anyways, finally, the most cruel of all these dictators was the Trujillo regime. We won't go into everything here, but just know that during his absolutely cruel regime, cruelest in modern history, he ended up massacring thousands of Haitian immigrants, cementing further ill will towards Haitians and the Dominican Republic. So, how does this history explain the existence of La Ciguapa? Good question. I don't know. That we don't answer. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I hope we, we do it. We, we, have, we have some answers. We have some ideas. We did some research. So, uh, so in the article, La Ciguapa and El Ciguapeo, Ciguapeo, that's the male version. That's right. Um, uh, Gineta Candelario explains the political significance of the Ciguapa she writes, quote, with backward pointing feet, offering a built-in mechanism for mi- misleading those who follow, pursue, or attempt to grasp her, the Siwapa signals that Dominican social facts are often two opposite things at once. Progreso, progress, and regreso, return. A contradicción, uh, or a contradiction within tradition, and a contradicción, against and contradiction. So the Siwapa can be understood as embodying the simultaneously progressive and regressive sovereignty strategies and sentiments of a people whose ancestors were both colonizers and colonized, enslavers and enslaved, 
immigrants and native-born, navigating landscapes ruled by caudillos jostling for personal power in a nation born beneath the United States. So that's her description of um, the the birthplace of La Cihuapa, right, and, and El Cihuapeo. It is, it's a creature born out of this conflict, and she talks specifically about the backwards-facing feet as like this representation of both hiding your path, right? Trying to trick people into not following you, but also this move forward and backward. Um, And that's really important because in a second, I'll talk about like the nationalistic projects of the Dominican Republic and how it wanted to differentiate itself from Haiti and from other Caribbean countries. And Lesi Wapa was was part of that, um, that project of, of wanting to mark a national identity that was unique to the Dominican Republic. And yeah, she talks about this like contradiction within tradition, which is like the valuing of some indigenous characteristics while kind of, not kind of, but getting rid of indigenous peoples through colonization. So doing both. So if we go back to the story by Guridi from 1866 that I read earlier, this guy is credited for putting the story down on paper but that's not the only reason why he's important. So he he wrote about the Siwapa, and obviously that's super important. But he was also um, this political figure. So he was born in the Dominican Republic in 1816, but he and his family left for Cuba during the period of Haitian unification. Um, then he lived in Cuba for a while and then went back to the DR in 1853 and then went back to Cuba in 1855. And finally went back to uh, Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic in 1861 when it was recolonized by the Spanish. So the Spanish had a hand again in the um, the DR around the uh, late 1860s. So be- he became a colonel with the Dominican Armed Forces in the successful War of Restoration from 1863 to 1865, where they expelled the Spanish once and for all and established the liberals as political vanguard. So this is when we kind of have the establishing of the military uh, governments that you were talking about. Um, So Guridi became this politician and public intellectual. He set up newspapers, was obviously a writer and a poet, um, and things like that. So he was uh, very much informing how people were thinking about the Dominican Republic and and shaping that. Uh, So according to Gineta Candelario, he was an active participant in the intellectual and political reconstruction of the Dominican Republic. In this process of nation building, there was a push to bring back the island's indigenous histories, right? So first you colonize and you get rid of the indigenous peoples by erasing their history, by killing them, by intermarriages, and all this sort of stuff. And then at some point you're like, oh shit, we need a national identity. What did we do with those histories? What did we do with those indigenous peoples that make us unique from other colonized countries? It's just you countries? frantically looking through paperwork and then being like, oh God, what did I do with those? Yeah. Oh, I burned it. I burned it all. I destroyed oh, their pyramid. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Let's make some shit up. Yeah. Um, so, so obviously it was not a push to bring back or support any remaining indigenous peoples, but it was celebrate the history in a super superficial way, as people do. Uh, a lot of Latin American countries have this history. The U.S. has this history, too. Yeah. Like you know, valuing the valor and like kind of like the connection with nature, like all these stereotypes about indigenous peoples, but forgetting that indigenous peoples are still alive and 
you could actually do something for them, like give them. I know, their right? Land. You could probably you could probably throw some money at them, maybe yeah. not. Yeah, not take their not, land. Keep taking yeah, their no, land, t- like you're doing now. You know, whatever. Building, <laughs> building infrastructure. I don't know. Recognizing more tribes. Yeah, I, there's so many, so but, many. But let, let's not do that. Let's instead create stories, create fictions, which is what happened. This is when La Siwapa became really famous. So we don't a hundred percent know from the sources if La Siwapa was a pre a pre-conquest story, but from the looks of it, it's a post-conquest story. So it was a story created by this mixture by after colonization. So we I, we highly recommend the the article by Candelario. I'll give the full title at the end. Uh, but she says, quote, by 1884, when Uridi had died, so 1884, the mythical Siwapa had entered the national folklore as if she were part of the island's indigenous cultural legacy rather than the invention of a nationalist navigating the Dominican Republic's contradictory racial demographics, political economy, and geopolitics, right? So this dude put the story on paper and started using that as a way to talk about the country, right? So if you kind of think back to how he described La Siwapa as this pure figure that, you know, that had a connection to nature, that was really beautiful, that was really exotic, you know, that's what the Dominican Republic will give to you, right? That's what the Dominican Republic is unique. Um, so so much like, like La Siwanaba, uh, La Siwapa, was produced post-colonization and as a weird way to co- recuperate lost indigenous histories into the new nationalist agenda. So not re- again, not really talking about indigenous peoples and their real histories, but making one up that served the romantic notions of the colonizers. Mm. Um, so Candelario goes out to write that, quote, it is telling that the Siwapa first appeared in Dominican society when Guridi published the novella, this novella in 1866, as the country was grappling with the wake of having been born of a 22-year-old period of Haitian unification governance of Hispaniola from 1822 to 1844, followed by the establishment of the Dominican Republic governed by competing caudillos, 1844 to 1861, the in- invited recolonization by Spain from 1861 to 1863, a war of restoration, 1863 to 1865, the birth of its second republic in 1865, and the looming possibility of annexation to the United States, 1866 to 1871. So La Chihuahua was kind of like a way to say, no, 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 we're different. And this is how we're different. This is our uniqueness. But also yes. not. <laughs> and in, it's interesting because I thought um, Guridi actually invented La Siguapa. I mean, it sounds like he's the only, the first one to put it down on paper. I really thought he actually created her. I, it was it was hard to tell, like, from the sources. Um, I, I do think it was, like, the first on paper. Mm. From That's what I figured, but... I, I don't know, like, that's the, the problem with, like, folklore and legends like this. Like, it's kind of hard to say this is where it started. Exactly. So at least we know he was the first one to put it on paper. And, yeah. man, like I was explaining before, there was a lot of shit going on. Like, wow. Yeah. The DR has been through it. Haiti has been through it. All these, you know, 
places have been really just through it. Yeah. And I wonder if this is why um, the Siwapas feel so similar to some of the European, like like you're talking like the nymphs and things like that. Yeah. Probably more, more of a European-influenced legend as opposed to maybe a Taino-influenced mm-hmm. legend. So... Of course, as we've discussed in other episodes, you know, a monster isn't ever static, but changes all the time and is used by different people for different reasons. This has been the case for La Siguapa, and that has become a power, a symbol of strength, power, and desire for liberation. So again, going back to Candelario's essay, she says that even the name Siguapa has been turned into a verb. So to Siguapear is to quote, act to call into being a method for political, intellectual, and cultural strategies of undoing imperialism and racism throughout the hemisphere. Tu siwapear often entails rejecting the seductive perils and pitfalls of nationalism in a distinctly Dominican way. Tu siwapear is to simultaneously enact and discern disidentification and disassemblance in Dominican history, society, culture, and politics. Accordingly, el cigarpeo is inherently progressive and regressive at once. The myth of, la, of the ciguapa was born of these contradictions. The ciguapa metaphor elucidates them. A ciguapa method addresses them. So that's really fascinating. So to ciguapear, so to see what about it sounds like almost like you're going against colonization, right? Yeah, I think it's kind of like because she says it's like progressive and regressive at once. It's both like like her backward facing feet, like it's moving forward and kind of reappropriating it and reshaping it, but at the same time reforming it into part of your tradition. In history, right? Like, how can this be a way? Um, because we we've read other authors that use La Siwapa as a way to tie back to the Taíno culture, and it's yes. like if this is not Taíno, yet you're using it to kind of work through Taíno identity and Taíno histories. There's kind of like a weird back and forth. Like, there's this weird dance that they're doing with the image of the Siwapa um, that is really fascinating and powerful and at the end of the day, is unique to the Dominican Republic. So, <laughs> so yeah. they did the job. <laughs> yeah. So, mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, yeah, I mean, I, I love that about these monsters. And, you know, like you say, they're not static. They're constantly changing. So, you know, one question is, you know, is the Siwapa a, a feminist symbol now? And um, in her essay, The Siwapa Speaks, Dominican Women in the 21st Century, Marianela Medrano Marra, Marra, PhD, notes that Taino culture was actually matrilineal and property was passed down from uh, grandmother to mother. And there are artifacts that show women holding possessions of power and accumulating wealth. Uh, today, that's not usually the case. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And you can kind of see that and the, the role that men have in the Siwapa story. So they're trying to protect their maleness, trying to avoid La Siwapa and her sexy backwards feet. <laughs> Who doesn't love backwards feet? <laughs> they're um, hot. Yeah. Hot new thing. Yeah. 
That's going to be the next plastic surgery fad. <laughs> doctor, doctor, can you please, can you please just turn these feet around? <laughs> That's all I need in my life. Uh, but but men try to like avoid her enchantment, like avoid being seduced by her, quote unquote. So she's a, a threat to, to men because of her sexuality, sensuality. Um, yes. So Medrano Marra, in talking to, she just an interview and talks to 11 women of Taino heritage. And in the interviews, discovered how La Siwapa can really be reappropriated and transformed from a cautionary tale for men to a symbol of female empowerment. Um, so the com- the common thread in the 11 interviews is that they um, they say that they found the Siwapa archetype empowering was because of her love of freedom and her rejection of the status quo. So again, her um, kind of living on her own and doing whatever she wanted, whenever she wanted, and, you know, braiding horses' hairs, if that's what she wanted breaking, to do. <laughs> breaking into people's houses, which I'm like, I'm down for that life. Right. So so there's something empowering about her, her freedom and her um, carefree. Free, carefree free spirit. Yeah. Yeah, so she's carefree and fear-spirited. And one thing to note, though, I do not know that it, in, in reading her essay, if she cared that La Siwapa did not come from Taino culture. As you mentioned before, there's this mm-hmm. kind of play there, right? Um, or if she knew that La Siwapa might not have, at least. We don't for sure know, but might not have come from Taino culture. Um, to me, in reading her essay, it spoke as if she did think it came from Taino culture. At least that's kind of the underlying thing that I got. Um, And perhaps it doesn't really matter. You know, one thing that we haven't really talked deeply about, but we kind of touched on, was that for these particular monsters that are post-colonial, possible post-colonial inventions, is does it really matter where they come from or where they came from? Personally, this is my opinion, I think it, only matters from like a historical research perspective because I love, again, I love history. I love researching those perspectives. But culturally, honestly, who cares? You know, these monsters are our creations and we can control what they mean to us. Mm. And although the La Siguapa might have been, maybe, created by a man, who can stop us from turning her into an awesome feminist icon? Right? Like, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I totally agree. Because, I mean, we have, like, one of the big symbols of um, patriarchy, right? The Virgin Mary is, like, this ultimate symbol of patriarchy, that women must be perfect mothers. Like, you know, there's nothing more ridiculous than a virgin mother. Um, I hope I don't go to hell for saying that. But, you know, like, (laughs) Like, it just doesn't, it's like she's so holy that she was holy before she was conceived. Yeah. Like, like, it doesn't make sense, and it's a way to kind of establish these rules around women's sexualities and women's freedoms, right? Like, you can't you can't even have sex, and yet you have to be a—you can't enjoy sex. You, yeah. But you have to be a mother, and you have to do all these things. So it, it definitely—I think what matters is what people do with it and how people um, reappropriate it. And, and we all have, like—that's the beauty of, like, poetry and— any sort of research, any sort of like creative thinking, we have the liberty to do that, to to reappropriate these symbols and make them something that makes sense for us today. Um, and yeah. yeah, 
it's really cool to see how people are doing that with the Siwapa. Um, yeah, and it was it was an interesting essay that I do recommend because she includes excerpts from all the women that she interviewed that are of Taino heritage. Um, and, and she includes kind of their perspective. Like, why did they find in this study mm. La Siwapa so empowering? Why did they find her so uh, extraordinary and so relatable? Yeah. And that was really interesting to me. Like, the they really related to that freedom aspect of just being free-spirited. And and she's like, she's living her best life in a cave. <laughs> Who doesn't <laughs> sleeping sleeping on tree branches? Yeah. Like, that's so carefree and so free-spirited. Like, yeah. again, who doesn't want the leaf mud pasties? Um, <laughs> They're good for the skin, I hear. Yeah, no, exactly, right? So you do a mud mask. Imagine applying that mud mask to the rest of your body. Yeah. Perfect. Well, and what I what I love about the aspects they liked about the Siwapa is that with that freedom comes, like, the lack of concern with um, sexual violence or the lack of concern with, like, um, economic uh, problems, like all that sort of stuff that we constantly have to think about as you know, minority communities or marginalized communities. And it, it's definitely that issue of representation. Like we have very few stories that are, are about us in a positive way. So sometimes yes. we take the stories that we have and make them positive or make them, you know, make empowering. Them yeah. I mean, that reminds me almost of, I'm going to go on a wild tangent here. Do um, it. So be prepared. That almost reminds me of anime. And hear me out. <laughs> Okay, well, not, hear me out. I was not ready for that. Let me, <laughs> let me hear me okay. out. I, I'm the queen of Here tangents. Okay. So basically, to me, it, in anime, and I watched a lot of anime growing up, in anime, you have a lot of shonen, which is boy-centered uh, anime, that doesn't include representation of women. Like, they just women are just not factored in, or women are usually like side characters, or ki- they're kind of annoying they're just nothing characters. And so you have these women or you have these um, boy-filled animes and and then you start to see like women being like, well, f- screw it then. I'm going to start pairing these boys up. That boy's going to kiss that boy and then that boy's going to be in love with that boy and, and all these things. And you see that a lot again and again because there isn't as much LGBTQ representation yeah. in media. You have... Uh, a lot of people, and there's essays written on this, not just in anime, but also in um, other types of media. Like I read a whole thing on also, what is that werewolf show? Teen Wolf? Teen Wolf. I was yeah, thinking of Supernatural. Wolf. I love that our episode on the Siwapa went from like really hardcore history of Dominican Republic and Haiti to shipping. We're talking, we're, we turned into <laughs> Tumblr. But I like those discourses too. They're yeah. fascinating because again, you're taking these stories and you're like, well, I don't see myself represented in this. So I'm going to create my, I'm going to carve it out. Yeah. I'm I'm going to, you know, shove it in there and not shove it in people's faces. I'm just going to create my own narrative that I relate to. Yeah. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I think I've run out of things to say. So I guess that's the end of the episode. <laughs> 
that's a good way to end the show. We've we've run out of material. <laughs> we've run it. out of material. This is as far as we go, guys. <laughs> so um, that's basically it for this month's episode. Uh, just to kind of wrap it up, uh, I really did think that Lussie Wappa's history and mythic birth is fascinating as usual, right? We wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't fascinating and fun to us. Uh, similar to Lassi Wanaba, the origins are not pre-colonial. Possibly. But post. Maybe. It makes me... So this is one thing that I did think about too, is like it mm. makes me wonder how many amazing stories we've missed from so many cultures, not just Latin American cultures, but just so many cultures throughout the world. But in terms of like that have been like destroyed by Spanish and European colonizers. However, I do take comfort in the fact that they live on in our DNA, uh, also in actual communities because they're not all dead. (laughs) They are alive, guys. What? There's Um, indigenous people still alive? Yeah. And, And we have, and we are related, even though there's so many people who don't want us to be related you know, or deny their own African or indigenous heritage. And I take comfort in that, at least, even if we don't know all of their history and their stories, you know? I mean, it feels like a Debbie Downer way to end, but (laughs) (laughs) It really is, but I'm I'm kind of a downer sometimes. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things I always think about. I'm always like, man, how many stories have we missed? Yeah. I do I do love I'll just say this I do love that so many people are trying to rethink that like I can't remember the name of it but there's a new video game out that uses like Aztec deities in it and looks really cool so I think people are trying to reclaim it and and rethink it even though it's not those lost histories because they're lost it, it is still there and we're still trying to process it so yeah we're still trying to reclaim them and, but yeah, that's basically it for today's, you know, this month's episode. Thank you so yeah. much for tuning in. As always, you can find us on, if you have words, if you got fighting words or nice words for us. Why, why do you want to start off with fighting words? <laughs> uh, if like, you have fighting words, talk to Brenda. <laughs> if you have compliments or suggestions, talk to me. How about that? I don't like fighting. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, but I could I could deal with fighting. Um, so if you have any any comments or are curious for more or want to want to connect with us and know when our next episodes drop, you can definitely follow us on Instagram. We post a bunch of cool stuff on there, so definitely check it out. We also have Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter at Monsters Podcast. Uh, same thing, Instagram, same handle, and also we have Facebook at Monsters Podcast, as well as Gmail. You can always shoot us an email at monsterspodcasts at gmail.com. Um, gosh, we have we have a lot yeah. of social media. And what else do we have? Go to we our, have our website. Um, our webs- I was going to say, we'll post the sources that we use for our web- on our website for today's episode. That way you go to our website. <laughs> Let's force people to go to our website. Go to our website, guys. Yeah. Go to and our you website. you want to look at the sources. I will mention, too, that we use quite a bit. So we use the article La Ciguapa y el Ciguapeo, Dominican Myth, Metaphor, and Method by Gineta Candelario. And The Ciguapa Speaks, Dominican Women in the 21st Century by Marianela Medrano Marra. For the rest of them, go to our website. 
Yes, we we did uh, did a lot. Uh, but yeah, so until next time, don't, you know, wander into a cave with a tiny woman with long hair. Yeah. Stay and safe. Back, check the feet. Check the feet. Stay yeah, safe. check the feet. If her, her feet aren't backwards, it's totally okay. I totally think you should go into that cave. Yeah, that's still not a... a a bad idea that's not a bad idea at all (laughs) all right guys see ya Bye. bye